This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We have been going through the seven letters to the seven churches, and we've been looking at a report card. And the idea is the fact that the Lord says something good about something, and we need to figure out what that is and emulate it in our life. And if the Lord says something bad about one of these churches, we need to figure out what that is and not make the same mistakes they are. In Ephesus, of course, the, uh, the Lord said good and bad things about the church. The bad thing about the church is you have left your first love. You've been more concerned with doing rather than being, with, with trying to create rather than focusing on me. In the church of Smyrna, of course, the Lord only said good things about them. They were struggling. They were persecuted for two centuries, and, and they held firm to their faith. And, and, you know, there's nothing bad. We just need to, to learn what they did and continue focusing on that. At the church of Pergamos, if you remember, there were both good and bad things. And Pergamos means mixed marriage, and it's when the church and the state became intertwined, and everything that we embrace today is right in true had its beginning in the church of Pergamos. Church buildings, paid clergy, seminaries, uh, the difference between the laity and the clergy, the, the turned around collars, separate rules for separate people, and it all began here. And there are some things the Lord commended about the church of Pergamos, but then some things that, that he said they were doing wrong. In order... I don't know how to say this. You, you've got to get a handle on this, and you've got to understand what I'm about to share with you. You know, the seven letters to, a, to the churches basically deal in four different ways. There were letters written to local churches that were struggling with these issues. So when the letter was delivered from John to a church, it's exactly the church in Ephesus was struggling within their own congregation that they have left their first love. The church in Laodicea was struggling with something totally different. There were letters that went specifically to those churches, but they also were written to all churches. As it says in each one of these letters, where it talks about, um, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to all the churches. It's also personal, because sometimes in our own life, we struggle with these things, and you can almost, you can almost track the devotion of a born-again believer who has kind of slipped into apathy by following these letters. They start out passionate for the Lord and then they're confronted by their faith and then all of a sudden they decide to just get along with everybody and I'll just kind of get in my little holy huddle and then pretty soon I'll adopt a lot of the things in the world into my Christian life and, and you can kind of see these things happening here. But the most important is the prophetic realm. God never leaves us without a witness or a testimony. In the, the 400 silent years between the closing of Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, the book of Daniel chapter 12 and 13, or chapter 12 just lays out for us all those events that are going to take place. Alexander the Great, the Maccabean Revolt, I mean, it's all, it's all laid out in there. And, and even in the New Testament, the Lord is showing us here, this is what the church age will be like from its inception until when I return. He doesn't leave us without a without a witness. These seven letters lay out church history for us in advance. They tell us about the time we're living in right now and the time that has happened in the past. And if they were in any other order, they wouldn't fit. I mean, it's, it's an amazing picture. And once you understand that, you're able to see the underpinnings that basically hold up the structure of what your belief is and where it comes. Each of the letters is the same. There's the name of of the church, to the church at Ephesus, then there's the Nea title of Christ, and each of those are different, to the one who is the amen, the beginning and the end, and on and on and on. And based on that particular church, he gives a separate title of himself. Then there's the good news for those churches that have good news. Then there's his rebuke 
for those churches that need a rebuke here. Then there's an exhortation. I advise you to do this. Here's what you need to do. There's a promise to the overcomer, which are all different from all of these churches. And then there's this closing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the first three of these letters, it was reversed. You had the closing before the promise. But in the last four, it's different. In the last four now, you have the promise to the overcomer and then this closing. And the reason is these last four church letters, beginning with the one we're going to look at today, are different because they don't have a specific age. You know, the apostolic age and the age of persecution are the age of the, the institutional church because it actually, they carry forward all the way into the tribulation. You'll notice that in these four letters, except the, the, the letter to the church at Philadelphia, because of their love for the Lord, they're specifically told that they will not have to go into the great tribulation and which is going to encounter the entire world. And so watch as we go through these that the closing now is at the very end. Ephesus, we've already looked at this. The church means darling or desired one. It represents the apostolic church. It's the only one that talks about apostles and basically um, covers from the beginning of the church up until the end of the first century, showing that even the church fathers in the very uh, first century were struggling. They were struggling with, how do we put this together? How do I say, stay passionate for Christ and somehow relative to the culture in which I live. It runs from about A.D. 30 to the close of the canon, probably around the year 100, and included a couple of the great persecutions. The Lord said good and bad things about this church. I really appreciate what you're doing. You're doing a great job. I need you to work on these items. And then he gives an exhortation. So our report card for Ephesus is good and bad, which is kind of what we would expect for all the churches. Lord, if you gave a report card for our church, I would expect him to say some good things and some bad things, wouldn't you? I don't think we're doing everything wrong, but I don't think we're doing everything right either. So, you know, the good and bad is like, I would say it's like standard for a church. An exceptional church, of course, like the church in Smyrna, the Lord only says good things to, and a really carnal church, he would say only bad things to. The next church was Smyrna. It means suffering or death. And, and the Hebrew word for the word is translated myrrh, of course, which is this spice that brings forth its aroma once it's crushed. The letter to the church in Smyrna represents the persecuted church that suffered during the ten great Roman persecutions. And it talks about you will suffer persecution for ten days. And, and we listed those ten to show you that this is really a, a prophetic letter about this historical time period. It runs from the first century up until about the Edict of Milan, uh, around 312, when Constantine, in order to unify his empire, basically issued an Edict of Toleration, and then later on, uh, subsequent Roman emperors basically made Christianity the church religion, um, with the state religion. Spans from about 100 to 312, and in this situation, all of a sudden, Christianity was now the favored child. The report card for Smyrna, of course, was good because they held on to their faith and they struggled during immense persecutions. And so we would learn from the Smyrna church the things that they're doing, but it again assume that we're, you know, we're kind of doing some things good and there's some things we need to improve on. Which brings us to Pergamos that we covered about a month ago. It comes from a combination of words. It means mixed marriage or objectionable marriages. And basically it means that the church is now married to the world, but it's doing so in an objectionable manner. Um, All of a sudden it was important for the church to be politically correct. And so now pagan temples became church buildings and pagan holidays became church holidays and, and pagan priests became Christian um, pastors and heathenisms was now Christianized, and all of a sudden it, uh, the church became perverted and the church became corrupt. Ran from 312 to about 606, which is the time that Boniface III became basically the first pope. But even for this church, the Lord said something good and, and something bad about it. I got that. They're doing something right, even though there's this this compromise that's going on, this politically correct mindset that's filtered into the church. 
Ephesus, I understand, good and bad. Smyrna, that's an exceptional church. Pergamos, good and bad. Which brings us to Thyatira. And at these, beginning in Thyatira, through Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, it switches here. And the, 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 the end of this church doesn't end with just a time frame, but it actually carries forward even into today up into either the rapture or the great tribulation of the church. It comes from two words meaning sacrifice and continual. And it means that, that we have to continually make a sacrifice to atone for our sins. It means you have to mix faith and works, that faith alone is not enough, that you have to keep giving and keep coming to church and keep sacrificing and keep doing something in order to make sure that you continually are saved. In other words, the sufficiency of Christ's blood and his death on the cross was not enough. And it represents the church of the Middle Ages, of the Dark Ages, what we would know as the Catholic Church today. And so when I'm looking at the church of Thyatira, and we are Protestants, and we understand truth and doctrine, and we understand the heresies of the Catholic Church, it seems incredible to me that the Lord would say good things and bad things about that church. That makes no sense at all, because there's so much correction that needs to be done. But I want you to watch, and we're just going to quickly review the Lord's letter to this church, and I'm just going to look at two elements of this today. First, the name of Christ. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God. Wow, first time that's mentioned. Who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. The good news. Well, what good news could you say, Lord? And it's the greatest good news that he said of any church up until this point. Which unnerves me. Here's what he says. I know your works your love, your sacrifice, your faith, and your patience. And then he has the audacity to say that you're getting better. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. The bad news. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. The sin of this church was to this age of the Catholic Church is to allow this, this spirit in there that gets their eyes off the true Christ. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Second time we find that phrase used, both by the Lord Jesus Christ, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches, meaning there are other churches other than this one, shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the heart, and I will give to each one of you, not her, but each one of you according to your works. Then the exhortation. And this is where it gets, again, we're not going to look at this until next week, but this is where it gets, it gives you chills. After saying these things about Jezebel in the church and all the events are going to take place, he says, now I say to you, well, who is the you he's talking to? And to the rest in Thyatira, well, who are the rest? The rest of this church, these are the rest that obviously have not been seduced by Jezebel, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have. Here we are now, the second coming of Christ, the end until I come. Promise. And he who overcomes and keeps my word, how long until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And the, the quote he uses here is from Psalm 2, where Jesus is talking about setting up his millennial kingdom. And he shall rule over them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessel, as I also, and I will give him the morning star. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, something changes, because now we have all of a sudden this, this promise and this closing at the very end of the letter. 
Now listen carefully. Um, if you believe, which I firmly do, that these letters lay out for us church history in advance, then the letter to the church of Thyatira, and you're going to see as we go through Jezebel and all that kind of stuff, is a perfect picture of the Catholic Church. Perfect picture of the Catholic Church. We are Protestants. We came out of that. We consider them um, the institution non-Christian. And, and yet the Lord says some amazing things about them. How can that be? It, is he wrong? Or are maybe we viewing something through tainted eyes? Watch this. The name of Christ. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, described as he who has an eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. This is the first time, the only time in these letters that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. Up until that time, he identified himself with euphemisms that point to the fact that he's the Son of God. But to the church in Thyatira, he specifically wanted them to know, I am the Son of God. My question is why? Why, why is that important? And then all, all of a sudden, I, I see, these, I see these, uh, these other indications of who he is. I mean, if you think about it, when Jesus first revealed himself to John... He didn't reveal himself as the Son of God, but he revealed himself as the Son of Man. Look what he says here in Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> then I turned, John says, to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, the suffering servant, the humble one, the one who came and gave his life for us clothed in a white garment down to the feet and girdled about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. John wanted us to know that this was the Lord, but John identified him in Revelation 1 as the Son of Man, that he came in human flesh to identify with us and forgive us of our sins. But in Thyatira, Jesus says that I am coming as, I want you to realize I am the Son of God the Son of God of judgment, the Son of God of wrath, the Son of God that is speaking with authority. This is a serious issue, church in Thyatira. And so he reveals himself as that. And then the description of Jesus is one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Why? I mean, what, what does that mean? Why did Jesus choose these two examples to describe himself? Again, Back to Revelation. A little bit further now, chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. And his hair and his wool, and his, and his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. Well, well how fine? As refined in a furnace. If you understand idioms from the Old Testament, when it talks about refining brass and, and, and getting the impurities to float to the top and, and refining it in a, furious, a furnace, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the judgment of God. So Jesus is revealing himself <clears throat> as the Son of God, and the description of him talks about judgment. And his voice, the sound of many waters, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went his sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And John's response should be the response of us and the response of Thyatira. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Oh my gosh, I have seen the Son of God. It's like Karen shared today. You know, the God who creates the sun that will burn your retina in a second when you look at it. And we think that we're in his presence. We will not fall on the ground as if dead. Isaiah, John, holy, holy, holy is, is the Lord Almighty. I'm a man of unclean lips. What good could possibly happen be in me? Revelation 19, there's more descriptions of Christ. And it has to do with the judgment of Christ. It says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes 
in righteousness and judge in judgment, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. When it talks about Jesus coming in judgment, he rever refers to himself as the Son of God. To the church at Thyatira, these then things say the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And then the good works. I want you to watch this. He begins by saying, I know, this is Edo, this is I, I know, everybody knows, I'm, I know your works. I know your works. Not what you claim, not what you say, not what you profess, but I know what you've done. I know, I know how you've acted out what I've given you. I know your works. And I find the amazing thing about this is Jesus judges all of his churches by what they do and not what they say. If we begin to look at each other's lives and their actions and we judge people by what they do, we're judgmental. We're, we're being critical. You, you can't judge my actions. You only have to judge my profession. But if your profession and your life doesn't measure up, what's the point of judging your profession? Because your profession is obviously false. And so Jesus doesn't go with the profession here. He judges what they do, how they fulfilled his commandments, how faithful they are, the whole issue of <coughs> sanctification. I know your works we assume that maybe he doesn't judge the church today in the same way, but I'm here to tell you that he does. He does. Nothing changes. Because Jesus judged all his churches by their works. The word works here is ergon and means work or performance. is the result or object of employment. It's something to be done. It's not something extraordinary. If you were a child, it would be chores. It would be something that was expected of you. You don't get rewarded for it. You don't get a pat on the back or an attaboy or extra allowance. It's your chores. Because you're a son, I expect you to respect your mother, to make your bed. It's that kind of works. It's not like, well, I'm going to do something really special, better than anybody's ever done, and I'll get praised for it. That's not what the word means. And so what Jesus is saying, I know what your duty is. I know how you're performing as a Christian. I, I know that if you were an, employer, an employee, that this is how you would fulfill your fiduciary duty to your employer. I know your works. You need to understand it's a natural response of the church to the Lord of that church. Nothing special. Nothing extraordinary, nothing praiseworthy, but it's expected as our reasonable or spiritual service to him. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable or spiritual service. It's just the outflow, the natural thank you for what the mercy God has already shown. And that's exactly what the word means here. I know your works. Watch this. Church at Ephesus. I know your works. And then he goes on to talk about them. Doesn't say I know your profession or your attendance. Doesn't say I know what you claim to be. It's what you truly are. I know how you are at the daytime, and I know you how you are with your friends. I know your thought life. I know your, your sinister habits. I know what you do when you're all alone at home at night with the Internet. I know your works. Deficits. Yeah, but what about... No, it's your works that matter. Smyrna, I know your works. Pergamos, I know your works. We've already looked at uh, Thyatira, Sardis. Now to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. First thing, I know your works. The church in Philadelphia, the church the Lord loved. Hey, I know your works. The church in Laodicea, the church age in which we live right now, I know your works. I mean, it's amazing. The Lord now is looking at the church at Thyatira 
And he's saying, I know what you are doing as an outward sign of your commitment to me. And we're going, really? Really? That church? And he begins to describe some of those works. I know your works and your love. Guess what word this is? Agape. The church in Thyatira, the church of the Middle Age, the Catholic church has agape for somebody other than themselves. This is the first and only time this has been used to describe one of his churches. Now, the word has been used in the seven letters to the church at Ephesus, where it says you have left your first agape. But to describe a church, this is the first time, the only time that happens. It doesn't happen to the church in Laodicea. It doesn't even happen to the church in Philadelphia. But only the church in Thyatira. I'm troubled. I know your works, your love, and your service. The word service here is denakanoi, which means ministry or benevolence to another. What? I mean, I, I've read The Woman Rides the Beast, and I've, I've, I've read the history of the church, and I understand about the Inquisition and, and stuff of that. I mean, come on. Come on. What, what are we talking about here? Keeping the Bible from the, the laity and per, the whole doctrine of purgatory? But the Lord says, I know your works and your love, and your ministry, and it gets worse. By the way, this is the only time the Lord uses ministry to describe a church. He doesn't talk about our church. He doesn't even talk about the church in Philadelphia, about having a ministry heart. And then we go to faith. Faith is the standard word, pistis, that we've looked at a hundred times. It means firm conviction and belief in the truth. And not only that, but one who is faithful and trustworthy with that truth. Lord, um, this can't be right. I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm missing something. I mean, there's, there's, there's something deeper here. He goes on. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. Patient means to persevere and remain under, to bear up under, to endure as do things or circumstances. Wait a second. That's what the Protestants had to do to you. That's what the Protestants had to struggle with, with the Jesuits and uh, Ignatius Loyola and all. I mean, what are we talking about here? And then it says, as for your works, the things that you're doing, the last are greater than the first that he's basically saying that this church seems to be getting better. How can that be? I mean, how can that be? Especially when we consider this. Here's the benchmarks that the church of Thyatira, the Catholic church, has left us represents the pagan church during the Dark Ages and the false teaching of the Catholic Church. It's institutional mixing of faith and works for salvation, and therefore you have to go to the Mass. You had to, there's things you have to do. Salvation is not once and forever. You could actually lose your salvation. That we must continue offering our sacrifices to be reconciled to God, and those sacrifices are always dealt in the, within the confines of a single church. I mean, how can that be? The period runs from about 607 until the Tribulation. Now watch what happens here. Why well, have a struggle with this until the Lord begin opening my eyes? In 607, Boniface III is the first pope. In 709, all of a sudden it became proper to kiss the pope's foot. Not Christ anymore, but now the pope's foot. Then in 786, the worship of relics and images, which is specifically prohibited in the uh, Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, if you will get a Catholic Bible today and you look at the Ten Commandments, that commandment is, is removed and the, and the Tenth Commandment is split into two commandments. It's really fascinating. Um, in 850, the use of holy water began, something only the church has. By 995, we're canonizing dead saints. That now these people have a special place in heaven because of something that they did uh, affirmed by the church itself. By 1079, celibacy was 
uh, proclaimed to the priesthood, of course, saying that the Pope traces his lineage all the way back to Peter, who actually had a wife and kids, as we know. 1090, we have the institution of prayer beads. In uh, 1184, the Inquisition began. More Christians were killed during the Inquisition than uh, any of the persecutions that took place in the first two centuries of the church. In 1190 was the sale of indulgences. They had to sell indulgences in order to pay for the Inquisition. In 1215, you had the doctrine of transubstantiation, which basically means that when the priest, that's why only the priest can do this, the wafer actually magically, supernaturally becomes the literal um, body of Christ, and the wine during the Eucharist becomes the blood of Christ, I mean like with a type A or B or something of that nature, of Christ, that literally takes place when the Lord's Supper is given. Therefore, only the priests are able to do that. By five years later, you have something called the adoration of the wafer. Since this represents Christ, we're to actually adore and praise this wafer. And the Lord said amazing things about this church. 1229, the Bible is forbidden to laymen. Why? Because we don't want you to know that what we're teaching isn't exactly in the Bible. By 1439, you have the doctrine of purgatory, which means that somehow Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient and your loved one is stuck in this netherland of purgatory for an indeterminate amount of years determined by the church. And in order for you to rescue them from this netherland or this this state that's a little better than hell but nothing like heaven, you have to pay a certain fee to the church. By uh, same year, the doctrine of the seven sacraments were also affirmed. By 1545, tradition was granted equal authority with the Bible, so it doesn't matter what the Scripture says. It's just what we have been continually doing over and over. And by the way, in the Protestant church today, we do exactly the same thing. That We've kind of always done it that way, and it's always been that way. And if we do anything any differently than kind of what we've always kind of done, that somehow that's wrong, no matter what the Scripture says. 1546, the apocryphal books were added to the Bible. If you ever read those, you will find some of those are literally blasphemous. Jesus, as a young child, is uh, making a mud bird, and his other people are making mud birds, but his mud bird flies, and somebody steals his donkey, and so he strikes him dead at the age of nine or ten. I mean, just blasphemous stuff about the Lord now included in the holy books. By 1854, we have the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Not only was Jesus born of the Holy Spirit, but we have to somehow take that deity and move it back to Mary. So now Mary wasn't born of just a mother and father. She was already, she was immaculately conceived just like Christ was. Then in 1870, the infallibility of the Pope was declared. In 1950, you've gone to not only was Jesus ascended into heaven, but so was Mary. And then by 1965, Mary was proclaimed the mother of the church. And it gets worse. I mean, how can that be? How can that be? What, Lord, what's going on here? And then you look at the history of the popes. This is, um, this is shocking. Syracus, Bishop of Rome, 395 to 398, in his lust for world power, claimed universal jurisdiction over the church. Leo I, in 440 to 461, declared himself Lord of the whole church. He advocated exclusive universal papacy. Resistance to his authority was a sure path to hell, and he advocated the death penalty for heresy. We're, in the, uh, we're moving to the point that Boniface III becomes really the first pope. Nicholas I was the first pope to wear a crown. Oh, no, Christ wears the... No, no, I'm wearing a crown because I actually have a kingdom here on earth. The 200 years between Nicholas I and Gregory VII, 1870 to 1050, are called the Midnight of the Dark Ages because of bribery, corruption, immorality, and bloodshed marked this black chapter of the Catholic Church. It is horrific, some of the things that the Pope did. Sergius III had a mistress... Uh, and her mother, they filled the papal chair with illegitimate sons and turned the papal den into a den of robbers. This is called, in history, the rule of the harlots. Basically, a pope had mistress, and they had a whole bunch of kids, and so they made all their kids cardinals and judges and rulers, and it became a really horrific thing. John the uh, Tenth 
was brought to Rome and made pope by the um, Theodora for her convenient gratification. She was having an affair with him. He was smothered by Marzoa and then in succession raised to the papacy other of their kids, Leo VI, Stephen VII, and John XI, who was her own illegitimate son. Another of her sons appointed the four following popes, Leo IV, Stephen VIII, Martin III, and this guy II, and John XII, a grandson, was guilty of almost every crime imaginable as the pope. He violated virgins and widows. He lived with his father's mistress. He made the papal palace a brothel. He was killed while in the act of adultery by the woman's enraged husband. It's worse. Benedict VIII and John XIV brought the office of the pope with open bribery. I want to be a pope. I'll make a big donation. Benedict IX was made pope as a boy of 12 years old because of a money bargain that was done by many of the powerful families who were funding the church at that time. He committed murders and adulteries in broad daylight. He robbed pilgrims on the graves of martyrs, which was a horrific crime at that time. The people finally drove him out of Rome, and some call him the worst of all the popes. This is all during the church age of Thyatira. Matter of fact, he got so crazy that from 1045 to 1046, there were three popes. One from England, one from Germany, and one in Rome itself. Innocent III was the most powerful of all the popes. He's the one that coined the phrase, the vicar of Christ or the vicar of God and supreme sovereign over the church and the world. And then the Inquisition began. It was called the Holy Office and was instituted by Pope Innocent III. I love that. Pope Innocent institutes the Inquisition, which was designed to destroy and kill anyone like you and I who disagreed with the doctrine of Jezebel in the church. Under it, everyone was required to inform against heretics. Anyone suspected was liable to torture without knowing the name of his accuser. The proceedings were always in secret. I don't suggest you do this, but if you have ever gone as a kid or something to one affair, then they always have one of those... Um, chamber of horrors or tortures or stuff of that nature, and you go in and look at all the torture stuff that they had. These are all come from the Inquisition. Horrific things they would do to believers like you and I. For over 500 years, the Inquisition was the most diabolical thing in human history. And for the record today, none of the holy and infallible popes have ever apologized for the Inquisition. Rather, their leadership and instigators have been elevated to sainthood, the popes that actually promoted it. It was recorded that just in 30 years, from 1540 to 1570s, for example, 900,000 Protestants were put to death by the Pope's Inquisition when all he wanted to do was destroy the Waldians, which is like the Southern Baptists of the, of the people at that time. Boniface VIII and his famous uh, papal bull said this, We declare and affirm and define and pronounce that it is altogether necessary for salvation that every creature be subject to me, to the Roman pontiff. And that hasn't changed. There is no salvation apart from blind obedience to the Pope and to the Catholic Church. John the twenty-third. 1410 to 1415, called by some the most depraved criminal who ever sat on a papal throne, was guilty of almost every crime imaginable. As a cardinal, he uh, had over 200 maidens, nuns, and married women fell victims to his pursuits. As a pope, he violated virgins and nuns. He lived in adultery with his brother's wife. He was guilty of sodomy and other nameless vices. He bought the papal office, sold the position of cardinals to others, to the children of wealthy families, and openly denied that there was any heaven after death. And if you lived like this, I would kind of understand that, wouldn't you? Pius II was said to have been the father of many illegitimate children, spoke openly of the methods he used to seduce women, encouraged young men to do the same, and even offered to instruct them in his methods of self-indulgence. Of the most deviant matters imaginable. I want you to know I am really giving you the G version of all of this. If you really search it, you will find that these are the most, some of the most depraved people imaginable. Paul II filled his house. What's said about him in history books is that he filled his house with concubines. Sixtus, 
the fourth sanctus the Spanish Inquisition and decreed that money would deliver souls from purgatory, was implicated in a plot to murder one of the Medicis and other who opposed his policy, used the papacy to enrich himself and his relatives, and he made eight of his nephews cardinals, while some of them were just mere boys. I mean, it's like they're a play toy. Innocent VIII had 16 children by various married women, multiplied church offices and sold them for vast sums of money, decreed the extermination of the Waldenese, appointed the brutal um, Inquisitor General of Spain, and ordered all rulers to deliver up heretics to him. Alexander V is called the most corrupt pope, licentious and depraved. He bought the papacy, made many new cardinals for money, had a number of illegitimate children who he openly acknowledged, and appointed to high church offices while they were yet children. And they, with their father, murdered cardinals and others who stood in their way. He had for a mistress the sister of a cardinal who literally became the next pope. And it goes on and on and on. Well, that's why there was a Protestant Reformation. That's why we understood the, the gospel. That's why we tried to... To, are, are we, we regained salvation by faith alone? That's why we did what we did. But watch the report card. Watch this. Ephesus is good and bad. Got that. Smyrna, perfect. Pergamos, good and bad. Thyatira, I'm really having a hard time, Lord, understanding the good. I certainly know the bad. When it comes to Sardis, that's the time of the Reformation. That's the letter that deals with us. That's the letter of Martin Luther's 95 Theses of Calvin and Zwingli. And, and that, that's, that's who we are. And if you'll read this, you will find the Lord said nothing good about that church. Nothing. How can that be? How can that be? Nothing. And then we go to Philadelphia, where you've got only good things said to it, and then we have the church we're living in now, which is based on the Reformation, and we call ourselves Reformed, and, and we find that in our church, nothing, nothing is said good about that church. Are you troubled? I'm troubled. How can that be? I'd almost like to just say, maybe this isn't prophetic, and throw this out the window, because these things violate some, some real deep sensibilities that I have. I mean, how can the Lord say anything good about a church filled with so much corruption, and have nothing to say about the church, the Sardis church, or even a church ours, that shed their own blood through the Inquisition to remove ourselves from that corruption? And that's the problem. That's the problem. I'm asking the Lord, is there something we're missing? Is there something I'm not seeing? And I think so. I mean, I, I really think so. Now, what we do is we, face, we focus on right and wrong. You know, we, um, we as a nation decided that there was no taxation without representation. And so, therefore, we rebelled against England and, you know, the Tea Party and all the stuff we're proud of and all the heroes and Valley Forge and, you know, um, Paul Revere and all that kind of stuff in history. It's just, it's just, that's, those, are, those are heroes for us because we're not going to live under a repressive government like England, and so, therefore, we rebelled. Got that. And we've assumed that that rebellion is proper, because look how God has blessed our nation. I mean, we're the greatest uh, exporter of porn and filth, uh, irrespective of that. Back in the good old days, look how God has blessed our nation, and so therefore, it must be okay. Until you look at the scripture where Paul talks about what our responsibility is to be towards civil government. And nowhere does it say in Scripture that it's okay for you to violate God's command because you don't like your representation and you think your taxes are too oppressive. Remember? Nowhere does it say that. It says that we're to live quiet, peaceful lives and we're to pray for rulers and, and there are ways to change things, but you don't change things by open war or rebellion. You change things through the system. Well, what happens when we can't? 
What happens when we get so frustrated we can't take it anymore? Then we have Braveheart and we have Rambo and we have all these heroes of our culture today that say, I'm not Clint Eastwood, I'm not taking it anymore and, and we're going to do it our way. And, and, and that, that attitude moves into the church. Exactly what happened at the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation did immense wonderful things. But we kind of view it as we're right and they're wrong. And it can't be that way. It's not a point about the corruption of the church in Thyatira and everything it represents, because the Lord addresses that. I will kill their children. I will cast them in the great tribulation. I will take care of them. It's not about how bad they are and how good we are. It must be something else. It must be something they're doing that we're not. I have a really hard time with this because um, I think what the Catholic Church teaches is absolutely reprehensible, um, especially when it comes to what the Scripture teaches. But then I look at our church today and we're splintered into 9,000 different factions. That every single person who has anything that they disagree with somebody else can be an authority under themselves and start their own church and their own denomination. They can write their own books and nobody speaks for the church anymore. And they haven't since the Reformation. Nobody speaks for the church anymore. At the end of the book of John, the one thing that he prayed for, for his children, was unity. That they would be one. He didn't pray for correct doctrine. He didn't pray that they would experience the abundant life in Christ. He didn't pray that they would know how to worship. That was all assumed. But what he prayed for is they got to get together. they got to believe as one. Because if they believe as one, then the world will know that you really sent me. Because we can set aside all our differences. And as a family, we can come together and, and, and believe. And, and we can work out our differences. I mean, we do that with our own families. You know, my, I have my kids and... You know, Krista may view something some other way, and, you know, other than maybe the way that I've raised her, and we sit down and we talk it through, we work up a compromise. You know, because my view of Christ may be different than hers, and you notice that with your own kids as they get older. My sincerely held convictions may not be their sincerely held convictions, and their sincerely held convictions may be something I don't have a problem with. And we, do, we work as a family, as a loving family, and we compromise. And, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I mean, what happened here? It wasn't that their church is good, but the church of Thyatira held on to something that we have lost. And we hold as a banner, banner, banner of a badge of honor was our own independence, be able to believe like we want to believe, and everybody else is wrong but us. Methodist and Presbyterian and Baptist, and when you come to Baptist, you got Southern Baptist and Northern Baptist, you have Free Will Baptist, you have, I forget, Primitive Baptists, you have independent Baptists, you have, and even in the independent Baptists, you have all these different churches that are based on how they view music and how they view the King James Bible and how they view, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's insane. And, and who speaks for Christ anymore today? Nobody. For the Protestants. But the Pope still does for the Catholic Church. You want to know what the Catholic Church believes as an institution? You ask the Pope. They have a group of cardinals, which is like a, um, a large set of elders, and I agree, agree, agreed it's, it's twisted and, and they've messed up, but, but the fact is we've chucked the whole thing out the window and figured that we knew what was best. And I'm thinking, we're gonna, I'm thinking that maybe, maybe it's not the doctrine which is horrific and the things the church did which is damnable. It's not that that makes them bad, or, or it's not that, that that makes us want to chastise them, but the fact is they held on to the integrity of a single unit, which we have said is no longer important. We can't even get together with each other. Just try to find two churches that join together to do anything. Hey, we're going to have a revival this Friday. You got somebody coming in. Would you like to invite your church? No. Because if my church goes to your revival, they may like your church better than my church, and they'll go to your churches. No, you do your things, and I'll do my things. And, and then if you read the rest of this letter, and again, we're, we're going to talk about that next week. If you read the rest of the letter, you'll find that what Jesus was saying is, my church 
has allowed this sinister element to come into the church and pervert the church. This, this woman Jezebel with this Jezebel spirit who's coming in and teaching my children to be involved in sexual immorality, to love something, things more than they, they love me and, and to do things they're not supposed to do. And I've given her time to repentance because she doesn't repent. I'm going to take that element of that and, and chastise that and punish that and throw that into to great tribulation. Well, what are we supposed to do? Those that are still in Thyatira, what are we supposed to do? Leave or stay and fight? And we left. We left. I mean, I had nothing to do with that. You had nothing to do with that. It is what it is. They left. And I'm not judging them for what they did. But them leaving, even though their doctrine was correct, all of a sudden splintered his church into something not even recognizable today. What is the Christian position on abortion? I don't know. I know what mine is, but mine's different than the United Methodist Church. What is the Christian position on gay marriage and homosexuals being priests? I don't know, but it's different than a Presbyterian church. It's different than maybe the guy down the street, and so it all depends on who you ask. What is the position of the Catholic Church? Well, I'll tell you. Boom. Now, you will either follow it or you won't. That's up to you. But the position of the church is unified as one. And if that's true, it makes us have to rethink everything. I mean, everything. I mean, how do we... Um, how do we train pastors today? Well, we send them to seminary. Why? Uh, because we send doctors to medical school and because we send uh, lawyers to law school, so we should send preachers to preacher school. Well, when did that start? Was that how it was in the beginning? No. Uh, basically, pastors were trained by other pastors. Pastors were trained by a body of elders that they learned internally. Uh, Paul trained Timothy, who trained others, and the things that I've entrusted to you, you entrust a faithful man who can then entrust in others. But we've adopted a different attitude. So we'll get somebody to go to, there's nothing wrong with seminary. I got degrees coming out of my ears. You know, you go to seminary and you get a, a three-year bachelor's degree or add two more years or three more years for a doctorate degree on top of that, and now all of a sudden you're qualified to be a pastor? No. No, you learn to be a pastor by doing, by watching others, by by... I learned about on-the-job training. It's one of the reasons why you guys don't know this. I'll go ahead and tell you. It's one of the reasons why we have the group on Wednesday. Is I want to train somebody. I'm trying to train people to take my place. Somebody, you know, I already had a heart attack. Um, now hopefully I'll last a long time. But if I drop dead tomorrow, who steps in? Would we just filter away? We're just gone? Are we just held together by my personality? I mean, what happens? What happens if I die? What happens if I have a stroke? Could it happen? Absolutely. I mean, what do we do then? Who are we raising up to, to be the godly men that will follow? And that's what we're trying to do on Wednesday is, is teach the men how to teach and how to, how to share and how to grow and how to become men. It makes, us, it makes you want to rethink everything. When it comes to worship, I was reading... Um, I was reading a history book uh, about worship in the early church during the first hundred years. And it's taken from letters that were written from this, this you know, guy to that guy and, and all that kind of stuff. Because there's not much that's listed in scripture about worship except that it was a participatory activity. When each of you come together, one has a psalm, one has a hymn, one has a spiritual song. One does this and one does that. We have gifts that are to be exercised within the body of Christ. How does that even happen today? I mean, we basically think worship is we come late. Don't have to get here on time. You know, you'll never miss a movie. You'll never go to a game on time. You'll, and if a concert started by the time you get there, you'd be really irritated with people who drove you. Come on, I paid good money for this. But we can come to church anytime we want. And we can sit and half-heartedly participate in a few songs that are thrown up. And, and then we, we listen to somebody teach us or preach us or something of that nature. We, we have a... Uh, you know, maybe a time of fellowship afterwards, we have a prayer or two, and then we go home. I mean, it's the way it's always been my entire life, and it was that way for my parents and their grandparents, and all the way back as far as we can we think, that's, that's kind of the way it's supposed to be. But is that the way it was in the beginning? No, not at all. Not at all. 
I mean, a church came together and it was, a, there was, a, it was an organic organism. I mean, these people came together and leaned on each other and loved each other and depended on each other and cared for each other. They washed feet for each other. They, they celebrated the Lord's Supper because they understood what it was all about. And when they got together weekly, they, they had a fellowship meal together. Our churches today, hey, we're all going to go eat. Um, I have a fellowship meal. You want to join us? What are you having? Ham? Mm, I don't want ham. I feel like roast beef. It ain't about the food, dude. It ain't about. That's like that's like asking somebody to come over and eat. Hey, we'd like to know if you and your family come over and eat Friday. Y'all doing anything? No, we're not doing anything. That sounds great. What are you eating? Does it matter? I mean, does, I mean, does it does it matter if if I tell you something? You squash. I don't think I would go for that. But anyway, what, yeah, yeah. I mean, what are you eating? Oh, I thought we'd, uh, you know, we'd have chicken. Oh, like barbecue chicken or baked chicken? Barbecue chicken. Heinz or, you know. I mean, that, but we do that. And we've all grown up that way. And we've all kind of understood it that way. That it's, but is it right? Could, could it be different? Because are, are there some things that the church of Thyatira is doing Obviously, that we in the church of Laodicea, who gets our foundation doctrinally from the church in Sardis, that we could incorporate in our own life, to, not the corrupt doctrine, but to make us more like Christ. Next week, we're going to be just looking at a few more of these scriptures. Tell, this is the pinnacle church here, because it sets the standards for the other three letters. Now, in the middle of all this corruption, you have the church at Philadelphia, the church of the great missionary movements, the church who believed that doing was more important than just learning. And everything changed for that church. I know I've shared this with you before. You know, today we're going to have a mission conference. And so let's have a mission conference. And so we have a mission conference and we invite the Clarks to come and they do what they do at every mission conference. They share about the ministry in Papua New Guinea. They show some artifacts. They talk about what God is doing. They kind of give a report. They preach a message. And that's great. And uh, we leave after three hours with the Clarks or three-day mission conference. And we go, wow, that was great. We really fulfilled the Great Commission because I learned about missions. I learned about what God was doing in Papua New Guinea, so I feel more enlightened in my head about the Great Commission. That's not what the Great Commission says. The Great Commission says to go. The Clarks heard the Great Commission, and they went. You don't have to go overseas. You could go here just to, to minister to people. And, and we've adopted the, the Gentile view of missions, where it's just about what we learn rather than the Jewish version, which means when it says go, it means what? Go. It means go. It means do something. It means live your life according to his word. So next week, I hope that you'll spend some time looking at this letter to Thyatira and the letter to Sardis. Because in the letter to Sardis, it talks about the fact that, um, that they're to strengthen the things that they have, the things that they have, that, uh, that they will remain because God doesn't find their works complete or finished or perfect in him. Still doesn't. Still doesn't. But I believe that Jesus' final prayer on earth for unity is one he was serious about and one that brought his praise and commendation to the church of Thyatira and wasn't eclipsed by all the stuff that I would disqualify them for. Make sense? And I believe that one of the reasons why the Lord said nothing about the good about the church of Sardis is not because we don't have our doctrine right, because I believe we do. It's the fact that we don't have our life in Christ right. We don't have our sortology right. We don't have our church right. We don't understand how that works. We, we've split up into a million different factions, and we're okay with that. And that's not how the body of Christ is supposed to function. Imagine if the churches in Gaston County, all of them, got together for some purpose, for some reason, to vote for one candidate, they could make an impact, a powerful impact. But he's, or we've diluted it so much that it makes just the unity of the church of Thyatira, even with the corruption, 
something to be admired. Amen? Let me pray.